0: So this morning's reading is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And there's a few scary names, so do bear with me. I apologize if I get any of them wrong. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom. Endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Baltishazar; Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, Father, we want to just commit ourselves afresh to you. We want to thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, even in this most weird of times. And we just want to pray that your word would, as Jeremiah acknowledged in chapter 20 he said your word is like fire in my heart uh, a fire that i cannot keep within myself and i just pray now that your word would just burn within all of our hearts and holy spirit we invite you into our into our homes and most of all into our hearts to come and glorify and lead our hearts to jesus christ afresh today and we pray this in your name amen amen well, I think now Easter is um, dimming and we've completed Easter. Uh, We find ourselves still in lockdown and we find ourselves in this funny time and uh, I, I really feel almost what is going on for us Generally, as a country and as a church, is almost like labour pains before a birthing, and uh, you know, for those of us who've had children, will know that um, just before the birthing, there's a period of intense pain uh, and intense um, trauma before something profound and glorious is released, and I feel like in this time now where we are as a country responding to coronavirus uh, where some are experiencing intense difficulty and hardship that it's almost like some of the labor pains before God does something so profound and so glorious and so miraculous and so liberating for us as a country uh, that we'll look back and in the fullness of time thank God for 2020. Uh, you know, for us as a church, we have known that 2020 is a key time and nothing that we're experiencing now, challenging as it is for some of us, uh, for many of us, um, dissuades me from the fact that God is doing something so beautiful in this. Doesn't mean he's behind coronavirus, but within it, he's he is working. And I think in the period we find ourselves in now, there's a sense in which we are waiting on God, that we are Um, pressing into him and he's calling us to learn and to grow so that when we're allowed to come back into what will be some semblance of normal life, that we are ready, that we've been responsive to God's preparation in this time. And uh, uh, today uh, I want to introduce just a a series over the next um, couple of months uh, where we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Daniel the Old Testament book of Daniel, and uh, my subtitle as we look right the way through the the book of Daniel, and my title for today is "Prevailing in a Strange Time." And why are we looking at the book of Daniel? Uh, I mean, the book of Daniel was written, you know, around uh, five or six hundred years before Jesus, and what happens is the book of Daniel lands in a period where the Old Testament people of God. Find themselves post King David, post King Solomon, uh, in their promised land, it, uh, being a nation together, and then they go through a period of real turbulence in the monarchy of Israel, where there's a succession of uh, of kings, and the nation splits into two, and they become the Kingdom of Israel and the Kingdom of Judah, and you don't hear a lot about Israel, you hear more about Judah, and then. In the year 587 BC, nearly 600 years before Jesus was born, 587 BC, what happens is uh, a, a tyrant king, an oppressive king, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and he overthrows Jerusalem. He takes captive the people of Israel into his kingdom, which is in Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. And Daniel is written from this time where the people of God find themselves exiled from their promised land in Babylon, and Daniel is written into that period. And I'm not going to give you in this talk much more of the background, but if you go on our website and you click on the Daniel graphic, you'll find some of the background behind the context within which we find the biblical book of Daniel. And uh, for those of you who love getting into those things, you'll find a bit of stuff about the context in which it was written, uh, a bit of stuff about some of the key themes that you find in Daniel, a bit about how to read it, and uh, just some some sort of extra context um, behind that. But why would we read Daniel now? I mean, we we find ourselves uh, in April 2020 in the strangest of times, not exiled to a foreign land but exiled in our own homes, but definitely away from what is normal, what is familiar, what is usual to us in our daily lives. And within that context, what we find as we read this, um, this book about Daniel and three of his closest um, friends living within Uh, a strange environment is we find God working in such a way that he works in their lives so powerfully that he uses them not only to overcome their surroundings, but to actually be used by him to be transformative in probably one of the most hostile and oppressive cultures that can be described. And certainly as the Bible describes, Babylon represents in the Bible as the celebration of demonic and evil forces and in that context Daniel is used by God to bring transformation to that nation and, uh, and, I, and I think the reason I just feel that God is, is calling us to turn to Daniel now is because I feel like there is going to be a time where this lifts for us as a country and also as a church and the Lord is wanting to prepare us to be people who prevail in hot surroundings which are uh, challenging and at times hostile to us. And I'm gonna look next weekend at uh, more about the the role of the church in 21st century British society. Um, And I'm gonna look a bit about church and culture uh, next weekend. Um, But I just wanna sort of put this out there for us now. Do any of us ever find ourselves challenged by our daily lives pre-corona? Do any of us sometimes find ourselves sort of staggering through life, trying to survive it? Whereas, even as we've been reading in our daily readings as a church, from the first church in the book of Acts, what we find is, is biblical Christianity The things that God has established in Jesus for those of us who follow him is that we find such a way of following Jesus, having the power of the Spirit pulsating through our lives, knowing who we are, knowing who God is, knowing how we can be transformative in the communities within which we live. Let's look at it another way. Isn't it interesting that so often when you read about the life of Jesus, He interacts with people that the culture he was in were afraid to touch. People who are possessed by demons, who were cast away from society to remote places. People who were full of leprosy, who in that culture, they were terrified to go near. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does the opposite to the culture he's in, whereas he draws near. To those who are tormented in mind. He draws near to those with leprosy. And the very power of God in Jesus means that those with leprosy don't taint him, he releases life and healing to them. And do you know what? It's the same mandate for the church in our day. And there's there's something that I think we need to recapture here for every single Christian, not just someone like me who, you know. Uh, is a rector, or as my wife would say, a rectum, um, and a, a, a professional Christian. But listen, I'm living this out just as you are with my neighbours in my communities. And there's something that I think God wants us to find, brought to us through the Book of Daniel, which is about how do we prevail, how do we thrive in 21st century British life, so that we can bring the life of God to to, to a culture which is craving. The reality of something out of this world and craving real purpose, real truth, real peace and real joy. And we know that that is located and found in the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of our Heavenly Father and made real to us by the power of the Spirit. So there's something that we need to find. How can we live in such a way which is compelling and transformative to those around us? And that's what I want to bury into now So that when this whole thing lifts, we're like coiled springs, ready to go. Ready to release the life of God wherever we go. That we might drive forward in transformation. In love, in mercy, not with triumphalism, but with transformation to those around us. Is that good? (laughs) Let's do it. So let's jump into uh, Daniel. And our title today is um, Prevailing in a strange time, prevailing in a strange time. And um, just to sort of, you know, locate where Daniel arrives, uh, Daniel's written sort of around Jeremiah and Isaiah time. So if we're reading the Old Testament of the Bible, that's the kind of period that we find um, this... this narrative, uh, this history of what happened to the people of God. And you can read about what happened in chapter one of Daniel also in chapter 27 of Jeremiah. Daniel, again, not to give you a huge introduction, but Daniel covers, um, you know, the first six chapters are about some, how Daniel lives in this strange time, this, this oppressive regime And Daniel 7 to the end is some of the prophetic visions that Daniel sees about how the world works, about the end times, uh, and we find some really interesting stuff about the prophetic, about the character of someone who sees spiritual things, about the way the world is, and the way the world is heading. We find some really interesting stuff here. But what we jump into in chapter one what we jump into in chapter 1 is almost like a prototype chapter what happens to daniel in chapter 1 is is kind of instructive what what we find in chapters 2 to 6 is a prototype chapter uh, and what happens in chapter 1 um let's jump into so um so what we find in chapter 1 and we've heard verses 1 to 8 But what we find um, is really, I'm going to refer to the whole of chapter one. But what we find is Nebuchadnezzar comes in the sovereign plan of God and he marches against the kingdom of Judah, against King Jehoiakim, um, and he besieges Jerusalem. He overthrows King Jehoiakim, who's reigning, uh, and he conquers Jerusalem, uh, the kingdom of Judah comes under the regime of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar goes into the temple, the house of God. He takes away the artefacts used by the people of God in worship. Do you remember the care and attention that we read about in the book of Exodus? Given to how the the utensils, the the artefacts, the objects of worship were very specifically given by God, their designs, And precious materials were used to form them and they were treasured by the people of God. And Nebuchadnezzar storms in with his armies, he overthrows Jerusalem, he takes the objects of worship, he takes them back to Babylon and he places them, verse 2, within the house of worship in Babylon, modern day Iraq in the place dedicated to his gods, foreign gods, idols, uh, in the mindset of the people of God, he places all of their precious worship symbols in a place devoted to foreign gods. I mean, this would be just heinous and horrific to the people of God. Not only have they been conquered, but they've been insulted and the things that are precious to them have been taken to an object of Sacrilege uh, in, in Babylon. Uh, think about this for a moment. Can you imagine? I mean, Christians don't tend to venerate the cross as a symbol which is like it's important to us, but we don't place the cross as an object of worship. The cross is someone, something that reminds us of the one we worship, of Jesus and the sacrifice he laid down. But can you imagine for a minute? Can you imagine? You know, someone coming into our church and taking the, the gold cross we have at the front and taking it to a satanic ritual, turning it upside down and storing it there. I mean, that would be pretty serious. And that's kind of, you know, just to give us an insight into what's going on. Then verses three uh, to six, what we find is that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, basically initiates cultural ethnic cleansing. What happens is he takes the people of God into captivity in Babylon. He leaves behind only the least and the weakest and the poorest of Israelite society to look after Jerusalem. He takes away the rest of the people into captivity and he systematically seeks to educate the influential ones the nobility of the Hebrew people of God he systematically seeks to culturally cleanse them by educating them in Babylonian ways and so he he puts the most influential the most the most sort of famous if you like the most um, powerful and influential ones, for three years they're to be educated, they're to be systematically taught all the ways of Babylon and then once they've had their teaching they're to be brought in to serve Nebuchadnezzar in his palace, in his court Um, and we find four of those are Daniel uh, who's given a new name, a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar Uh, and then three uh, of um, the others who are going to be characterised in these early chapters, who we're going to find known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and um, they kind of take the spotlight of the narrative and the story. They're to be educated, and they're also to eat the same food of the Babylonians. And here we find Daniel basically saying no. <laughs> and he goes to the palace master and he says, listen, I'm not going to eat that stuff. I won't defile my, that myself. And the palace master, who I think likes Daniel, but he's afraid because he is disobeying what Nebuchadnezzar said. And Daniel essentially says, listen, let's have a 10-day trial. You put me only on vegetables and you examine me and Hananiah and Mishael and um, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you examine us at the end of 10 days whether we are healthier, we're more vibrant, we're looking stronger than everybody else who's been eating the rations apportioned to those who are being trained for the court of the king. And the palace guard essentially agrees this. He brings them out after 10 days. They've only eaten vegetables. They've refused to defile themselves of the king's food And at the end of 10 days they examine them and in verse 15 of chapter 1 it says that they appeared better and fatter than the rest of the young men who had eaten the Babylonian royal rations. And what happens here is that this pattern of living within strange surroundings, living within very hostile, very oppressive surroundings and yet finding ways to honour their surroundings at the same time as not dishonouring their God, our God, the God of Israel and not defiling themselves with some some of the Babylonian ways and culture. We find that pattern laid out in these early chapters of Daniel again and again and again. And not only this, but God vindicates, God uses their, their refusal to compromise to mark them out with favour in the eyes of the culture in which they find themselves. And God raises them up. And I think I, think I just want to sort of draw out for us just a couple of um, things um, that I think we can learn in chapter one from how Daniel conducts himself And apply them to our lives, even though we're reading this almost that happened, you know, two and a half thousand years before us. Let me take a drink. The first is this Daniel and his guys are taken into captivity where they exist there for 70 years. Daniel ends up serving under four different Babylonian kings. And never does Daniel doubt that God is the sovereign ruler over every kingdom and over all the nations. He never doubts that his God is the most high God, that he has a plan and that his ways will win out. And I think we can learn from that in the current period we're in, that despite all that we're experiencing and going through, that God has a plan and that his kingdom endures and outlasts every single kingdom of the world. Now it may seem obvious to us but it's interesting that the sovereignty of God in his overall ruling of the nations and the kingdoms of the world is something that perhaps sometimes we underplay because we've been discovering About the authority given to the church and to the followers of Jesus, you know, since since you know Jesus has commissioned us to go out and release the kingdom wherever we go. And the sovereignty of God to be at work in the kingdoms of the world and and to win out overall is a key theme in Daniel, and a key theme that we can find ourselves. we can can find again for ourselves in this period. And and I think when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it's important to distinguish between the overall sovereignty, the overall rulership and reigning of God over the, the generalities of life and distinguish that against the fact that we might sometimes think that God sovereignly rules over every single small detail of our lives. I sometimes think about it like this. Imagine being in your household now and you have a dog and your dog raids the bin. You've just had a roast dinner and you put the leftovers in the bin and the bin, for whatever reason, isn't secure and the dog raids the bin or wolves the rest of the roast dinner and whilst you're asleep in bed that night, the dog vomits all over the kitchen floor. (laughs) Now, are you in sovereign control of your household? Yes, of course you are. Are you in charge of every detail that happens within your household? Not all the time. So what are you gonna do the next day? You'll roll up your sleeves, you'll try not to be too annoyed with the dog, you'll clear up all the sick, and then you'll make sure that the bin is you know, secured properly and the dog is kept well away from the roast dinner. You are in charge of the whole household, but not every detail is always as you would like it to be so. And it's the same with how God rules over the nations of the world. His ways always win out, but the looseness is within some of the details of life as we experience it. But God is still present and active within that. And what we find in Daniel is he never doubts, even though the place of of. National and religious identity is overthrown in Jerusalem even though the people of God are taken into captivity for 70 years. I mean can you imagine being exiled for 70 years and yet Daniel never doubts that God has a plan and that he is at work and his kingdom will never fade never wear out and will eventually win out over every single kingdom that sets itself up against the kingdom of of God. And Daniel never doubts this. Secondly, what we find in Daniel is that he refuses to defile himself with aspects of the culture within which he finds himself serving at that time. And I think I'm going to talk a bit more about church and culture next week. But I think what's really interesting is that Daniel refused to bring into himself the food of the Babylonian culture. He refuses to bring stuff in the culture externally, internally into him. And he refuses to compromise in that way. Uh, And I think there's a real challenge. You know, something that grieves my heart more than anything is when the church simply reflects society. And it just should never be like that. I mean, look at Jesus. He just burst into you know, first century Jewish culture, and yet he not only fulfills the law, but he also brings such a a kind of fresh, you know, godly, disruptive angle on it that he subverts every expectation in a way that releases life and joy for those with ears to hear, and in a way which is utterly challenging to those who are in power and terrified of of what might be confronting their ideals. and I I think sometimes that you know we've got things to learn about what do we take into ourselves from our culture which is corrosive and challenging to the God that we follow and love and are called to worship and is God calling us to pay much more attention to the conviction of the Spirit to tear down the idols in culture, not, not to set ourselves up in a superior way, but so that we can be free of twenty-first the idols of 21st century British culture, so that we can be in our world, but not of it, as, as Paul writes in the New Testament, so that we can sound a different tone, a different melody within our culture, being within it and yet transformative and prevailing over it. And and here we see Daniel refusing to compromise and not just refusing to compromise, but also trusting God that when he sets his sights on God, that God is the one who vindicates and puts favour on him and to raise him up in the eyes of the culture within which he is serving. And isn't that interesting? You know, how often do we feel like we need to sort of almost please the culture around us? You know, how much sometimes do we, do we um, feel that, that we're, we're playing catch up? You know, or we are uh, rather than trusting God that when we put him first, when we seek first his kingdom, then everything else is looked after by him that he is the one where when we refuse to compromise and partner with the ungodly things in our culture, that suddenly when we humble ourselves before God, he is the one who can raise us up and release us to open doors for us, to bring blessing and transformation wherever we go. Uh, And what I mean by that, that is for a minute, is, you know, don't you just want to be like Jesus more and more and more, you know, so that we can be, found in pubs and yet not having to drink eight pints to find joy. (laughs) That we can be releasing joy in that place in a way that confronts the seduction of alcohol and release true joy and true freedom and true peace in in, in that place. Does this make, make any sense to us? And This is what we have. This is what we have in the kingdom and this is the sort of flipping that I feel that God wants to do with us where we flip over from almost catching up as the church in this country to try and reflect something in our culture and how often does the church try and do what culture was doing 25 years before rather than actually resounding something completely different, bringing a completely different voice and a different tone that just arrests culture and thinks, oh my goodness, I've never heard that before. We've never heard, it. we've never seen people who aren't stressed and anxious about what's going on. We've never seen people moving with such peace, which passes all of our understanding. And uh, I think this is some of the things that we find. So, Daniel is used to just, uh, by God in this place, refusing to compromise, trusting in God's sovereignty Refusing to compromise and he is raised up and he begins, as we'll read on in Daniel, to bring answers to problems that are confronting the culture within which he finds himself. Questions of how should he interact with that culture? Should he rebel against it? Should he lead a rebellion? How does he honour it and yet still be true to God? We'll get into some of that next week. But for now, let's just just see what is going on in this passage that God raises Daniel up to play a really transformative role in the life of the most godless, demonic, evil regime that there is. And I, I'm not looking at our culture. I, and please hear me if you're listening to this. I'm not saying British society is godless and blah 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 blah. But what I am saying is that there's been an erosion of God in our culture. And here, the opportunity for us to grow in these days and to allow God to grow us in these times so that we might be transformative on the other side. So, how did that happen? How was Daniel just like that? Is he just amazing? And You know, we just need to try and be like that. Well, how did that happen? Well, I just want to close by turning to the song of worship that the people of God sang in that land, in the land of captivity, in exile. And I want to turn, just as I close, to Psalm 126. And in Psalm 126, um, we find the worship song written by the people of God in Babylon. Psalm 126 is a, is a worship song written when they're in exile, when they're in captivity. And it goes like this When the Lord, Psalm 126, beginning at verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, they shall return with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Daniel and the people of God in exile wrote this song. They found God when they wrote this song of worship, Psalm 126, when they were in exile. And what is going on here? The first half of this worship song, Psalm 126, is where they are remembering a key attribute to the nature of God. This is is how Daniel lives like he does, not because he's amazing and we just need to be like him, but because they they had a revelation of a particular aspect of the nature of God that they remembered when they were in exile. What do they remember? Verse one, we remembered when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. What's happening is the people of God are remembering the God of Israel and the fact that the God of Israel is the God who restores fortunes. The God who brings something out of nothing. The God who brings light out of darkness. The God who brings liberation out of slavery. He is the God who restores the fortunes of Zion and when they were exiled they weren't going woe is me oh despair. What they were doing is they were they were singing and calling one another to remember a key characteristic of their God as the God who liberates, the God who restores fortunes, the God who who is trustworthy because he rescues and he is faithful and he never ever lets us down. And And they remember times where God restored the fortunes of their people. And they remember each time God restored our fortunes, do you remember what it felt like when he restored fortunes? What happens is when God reveals his attribute as the restorer of fortunes, it's like we dream. We come alive. We have laughter in our mouths. Everything's made good. Everything's restored. Everything's liberated. Everything comes alive. Our mouths are filled with laughter and our tongues are filled with shouts of joy because we look at God and what he has done and we rejoice. And we rejoice. And I think there's an interesting thing here that sets apart the Judeo-Christian religion from every other ancient cosmology, every other um, religious belief, every other mythology around that time. You know, uh, what distinguished the Hebrew people of God and what distinguishes Christianity from Egyptian worship, from Canaanite, um, cosmology, from Greek mythology, from Roman mythology. Do you know what distinguished the Judeo-distinguished Judaic- Judaism and then distinguishes Christianity? Do you know what distinguished it? I hear you say, "What, James?" Distinguishing it. Do you know what sets it apart is the fact that God acts in history to prove His nature. So, the very thing that set set apart. Judaism and the very thing that sets apart Christianity is not just a belief in God and his nature and his character but a belief in the fact that God acts in history and does things to prove his nature and to liberate his people and show his faithfulness to the people of God. Let me give you some examples. The liberation from Egypt that becomes a remembrance for the people of God because God did it. We remember a time where our people were held in slavery and God set us free. Our ancestors were captives and they were liberated. Our ancestors did wander around the wilderness and then they came into a promised land. Our ancestors craved a king and then God gave them a king. Our ancestors craved a place to worship and God set it up by giving them the kingdom of Israel and then by building the temple uh, in Solomon's reign and in his lifetime. For us as Christians, man, we, we don't just believe in Jesus, we believe in the history of Jesus that somehow there was a child incarnated to Mary who grew up and lived the most wonderful, compelling life, who taught the most incredible authoritative things that nobody had heard before, who really died on the cross and who really rose again, who really ascended into heaven and who really sent the power of God on his church now so that we are brought into the very things that he lived out and perpetuated and released in his life. And that is true for us. This is is history. This is the God who proves that he is the restorer of fortunes and proves his faithfulness because he does stuff in real time, in our lives, in history. And the way that Daniel lived in a foreign culture, the way that Daniel made his way through exile, the way that Daniel prevailed in a strange time was because they sat around as the people of God. In their quiet times, they rehearsed the narrative of the historical salvation acts that God had done when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion and you might open the brackets there and say, don't you remember when God liberated us out of uh, out of Egypt? don't you remember when God brought us into the promised land, when God drove away the inhabitants there and gave us our own land flowing with milk and honey. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. We couldn't believe it. God is the God who restores fortunes, who is faithful and who always brings hope in despair. Our our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy and God vindicated us. God vindicated us as a people and it was said amongst the nations, the Lord has done great things of them. All the other nations surrounding them looked at their nation and said, Oh my goodness, they could never have got out of Egypt. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has brought them into their land. The Lord has done great things for us, verse three, and we rejoiced. And then this worship song flips. It goes from remembering the nature of character of God and his mighty acts into the prayers that they would pray for restoration. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Verse 4 of Psalm 126, like the water courses in the Negev. What's that picture? Restore our fortunes. The Negev is a vast desert region of southern Israel and it's hot, it's a desert, it's arid and there's not much water at all apart from In winter floods and what happens is in the mountains in the Negev region it would rain on the mountains and all these tiny little rivers would just flow down the mountains and what they would form in the valley of the Negev is these deep powerful mighty rivers that in wintertime would flow through uh, the Negev desert powerfully washing things away, bringing life, bringing refreshment, bringing, bringing um, nourishment to the very arid places. And they're basically saying, Lord, that picture that we all know about, how every winter in the desert place, you bring refreshment and you bring a flood and you gather it all in from the, from the remote places, restore our fortunes in that way, gather us as your people from everywhere, gather us as your people and let there be a mighty flood that brings nourishment and healing and prosperity again in the arid places and may those who sow in tears reap with, so, with uh, shouts of joy, those who go out weeping bearing the seed for sowing, let them return with shouts of joy, carrying bundles, carrying sheaves of plenty in that place." what's going on there you know they would have heard the uh, they would have known the analogy for sowing a seed is an analogy of dying it's, a, it's an analogy where a seed goes into the ground and it dies in order to bear crops in order to bear fruit and they're basically saying may we who sow in tears as we lament lord as we cry out to you but in faith in belief because of our remembrance of your nature as we lament as we pray May we who sow in tears may we reap with songs of joy. We can see and we believe there's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a, a, a harvest of joy. There's going to be a shout of joy. There's going to be a rejoicing when we return, when we carry the plenty into the land that you've called us to. Now, let let me just sort of make the point. Why am I bringing you this song? Because Daniel isn't just a legend that we need to try and be like. No. Daniel knew his God, and we know our God. And God is calling us to grow in this period, so that we might prevail when this period ends. But look, what is the key attribute that, that Daniel and those in captivity return to? Return to in exile, they return to the fact that God is the restorer of fortunes. God is the one who brings something out of nothing. God is the one who always proves his faithfulness, who always proves his grace and his liberation and his mighty power. He always brings hope out of despair. They cling to that, the remembrance of that, and then they begin to believe in this vision of this mighty flood going forwards. Now, let me just apply that to where we are. You know, you think about your own story with God, And if you haven't got a story yet with God, and what I mean by story with God is the times where God has acted in your life, where he has shown that he brings life out of of death, where he brings light out of darkness, he brings something out of nothing. Now is the time where we really, really, really know that that is who he is and that is what he is like and we begin to go over our testimonies in our own lives of what he is like. And if you haven't got a testimony yet, then go through the scriptures and remember that this is what God is like. He's the God when the earth in the beginning was formless and void. He's the God who brought something out of nothing. He created life out of nothingness he that's who he is he's the God who called Abraham the chief patriarch of the Old Testament people of God a a patriarch going nowhere with nothing to do with no children of his own he called him and made him into a nation so much so that from his lineage his descendants would become as numerous as the grains of sand on on a shore there's the God who breaks in. He's the God who finds the Old Testament people of God in captivity and calls them out of there into freedom. He's the God who finds David, a shepherd boy, and makes him a king over Israel. He. So if you haven't got any history with God yet, build your life on his attributes of faithfulness and and the fact that he brings something out of nothing hope out of despair joy out of sorrow light out of darkness that's who he is and i'm telling you what you know for this country you know we have done our i don't know i don't i don't want you to hear this like i'm bashing the country cuz i love this nation but hear this I think those inside the church and outside the church, we can all recognise that what has happened to us in this lockdown period is the whole of society is basically saying there's something not healthy about modern 21st century life. We work too hard. We don't spend time enough with the people we love. We're kind of bound by this sort of voracious need to consume and to work harder and harder and harder. As a culture, people are getting left behind. Our economics just aren't working for everybody. There's something which is sick at the core of how we do life as a society. This is not me bashing or jumping or proclaiming do because I believe God wants to restore our fortunes as a country and as a church. And for us as a church. You know this is a time where I believe God wants to restore the fortunes of the church in society where we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way where it is going to be heard and received because I think through this God is getting our attention. One of my neighbours um, yesterday said to me you know that they were talking to a friend and their friend um I, they're not believers uh, you know, yet or anything like that, but their friend reckons God is inflicting coronavirus on us as a country to get our attention. And they said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, do you know what? Every time I draw near to the presence of God, I am just brought into the fact that life and light and hope and peace and joy just ooze from him, just emanate from his presence. So I just, I can't get my head around the fact that coronavirus would come from the nature of God. But I do know that God is working and he's trying to get our attention and he is calling us and he is drawing us to himself. And I think for us as a church, we have known that 2020 is a key year. And I absolutely 100% believe that off the back of this period, God is getting our attention as a culture in Britain at this time. And I believe that he wants to bring the church from a place of being isolated on the mountains in the desert of the Negev in the remote places you know we've been marginalized and and we've reaped some of the consequences of our own actions you know we've been marginalized in 21st century because no one's finding that we have anything useful to say into our culture and and perhaps some of the forces at work in our culture are dialing down our voice at times but i believe that that God is doing something where he is just releasing such water, such living water to the church in the remote places and there's going to be a gathering. There's going to be a time where those, those trickles, those rivers, those streams in the remote places gather and they come into a flood and where God restores and revives and awakens this nation to the person who has been chasing them from the dawn of time until now. The person of Jesus Christ, the very heart of the Father where he's calling them. And I think for us now in this time, it is for us to begin to pray to to cry out to God in our exile. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourse in in the Negev. Let us be faithful as your church to steward what you're doing in this time. May, May we sow in tears of prayer, in tears of intercession, in tears of lament for this wonderful country that you love, Lord. May, may we who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy when so many come to know you, so many find life in you, so many find love in you, Father, so many find their lives making sense as they find the living God again. May we who go out weeping in prayer. May we who get on our knees in prayer. May we who love this country and our communities in prayer. May we, may, may we, when we go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, as we release our prayers and our love, as we as we bless our communities in this country. Let us know and believe that we're going to return with shouts of joy carrying a mighty harvest and i feel more excited than ever that god is just at work and let us be faithful in this time with all that he's calling us to amen <laughs> amen and um i just i'm just going to just pray over us um now um as we um as we uh mm. Lord, we open our hearts to you, the Holy Spirit of God. You know, would you just convict our hearts about where, we, where we've been too compromising with the culture in which we find ourselves? And would you convict us of anything in our lives that we need to look at and do differently? Would you remind us that you have a plan, Lord, that you are working through the nations of the world? Would you remind us that you are calling us as your people? to 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 be used by you to bless and to serve and to love and to bring earth to bring divine answers to earthly problems would you find us open and willing learning what we need to learn in this time so that we're ready for the harvest of joy that you're bringing lord we can't wait and we just open up our lives and we just want to pray right now over every single person just wherever they are that you would just bless your people that you would bless your children, that you would bless your sons and daughters, that even now, if any don't know you uh, as they're hearing or watching this, that even now you'd open the eyes of all of our hearts to glimpse your majesty, Lord, to glimpse your glory and to know how good you are. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just be abroad in our homes, teaching us the things of you, making us strong, teaching us what it is to go into a scary or intimidating environment and to release love and joy and freedom and power and peace and grace in the name of Jesus. And wherever you are, may all God's people say together, Amen. Amen.